the start, and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein, here with Nicholas Zart. And as a quick reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review on iTunes to make it easier for others to discover us. How are things with you this week, Nicholas? Are you uh, relatively safe from the fires that are going through California right now? You know, fortunately, we are because we're a little bit south. We're south of Los Angeles. But um, I have to say our fellow and friend writer at Clean Technica, Kyle, suffered a lot of damages. And so, you know, we need to keep him in our thoughts. It's pretty horrible to go through that. I knew that there were fires. But for the last few days, I thought, my gosh, my neighbors are cooking up a storm here. Somebody's barbecuing like crazy. And then I finally realized, no, no, it's actually um, the smell of the fire. So the air is pretty polluted, even more so than usual. It's given us a lot of concern, that's for sure. I believe Grist had an article, perhaps I'll try and put it on the show notes, about how the rainy season largely hasn't come or hasn't arrived. The rains haven't arrived, which means that there is a very unusual fire in the rainy season or the regular rainy season, no less. So, Yeah, you're right, because usually it rains a little bit now, at least. It rains a little bit more also in February, March, but the air is so dry. Well, we do hope that uh, everyone affected by the fires is able to be safe and, where required, is able to access aid. There were some large fires in the interior of BC about 15 years ago. I think this was when the pine beetle was making its first wave of eating through rainforest. And uh, we happened to be driving there for a prearranged vacation. And I had a similar experience to you where suddenly we were smelling like a barbecue, like very pungent, very pleasant smelling odor. We realized, wow, this is the forest that's burning. And uh, later, as we approached the city, which happened to be a little bit closer to the fire, it started to rain ash or snow ash. Yes. It, it was a very eerie, otherworldly experience. And I hope that our listeners don't have to experience that, certainly. Of course, people who don't listen to the podcast as well, I hope no one has to experience that because it is, I'm sure, very traumatic and we can do what we can with respect to clean technology and sustainability to minimize the number of people who are affected by disasters of this sort. Yeah, it's certainly a good case for climate change. I mean, I'll tell you the last fires we had here, I had ash as big as my uh, thumb, fingernail on my car. We need to do something. Now, before we get to our, our main stories, we had at least one more review come in that we know of this week. So a big thank you to Dylan Harima, whose work we had referenced in an earlier episode as a wonderful little Christmas gift for us. He noted great mix of analysis and discussion on clean energy issues, particularly on transportation. Very interesting listening. Keep up the good work. So yeah, thank you very much, Dylan. You didn't have to, but that's very kind. If you too <laughs> would like to give Clean Tech Talk a gift that keeps giving through the holidays and beyond, please send us your love on iTunes as well. That will finish the commercial portion or the uh, self-promotion portion of uh, the podcast, and we can move on to our main stories. Nicholas, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so the, the one that I'm really interested in is right now is California is reviewing the crash liability for self-driving cars. Now, this is a topic that is really hard to cover, and it's really hard to understand the greater aspect of everything that it means in a nutshell. So who is liable when, a, when an autonomous car crashes into a regular car? And also, who's going to be responsible when two autonomous cars crash against each other. Those are the questions that the the California Department of Motor Vehicle is looking into. And of course, it's getting a lot of 
how should we say this, a lot of feedback from certain car makers, namely GM, that it needs to be very careful how it sees this. It's going to be very easy, put it this way, to blame the automaker when there is a crash. And of course, in our society, we, we want to sue everyone all the time. We want to sue the big corporations. So I kind of understand where GM is coming with that. But at the same time, I think it's a very fine line where we need to make sure who is responsible and who's liable for this. So I, I wrote a little article asking a bunch of questions. For instance, if you have, if you're driving in an autonomous car and let's say you go through a muddy route or you go skiing, you come back, you have sludge on the sensors, you come back into the city, the car is not going to function nearly as well. Of course, we'll have other systems, but the car is not going to function nearly as well. What happens if you crash? Is it your fault because you didn't clean the sensors? Is it the manufacturer's fault because they didn't take that into consideration? So those questions really need to be asked and we really need to take a serious, long, hard look at it. So another point too that I, I wanted to bring up is right now we see a lot of news on our car has 40 sensors. Well, my car is going to have 45. And so we have this sort of a, oh, excuse my French, but pissing contest about who can shove more sensors on cars. And to me, that's not really the most important part because putting sensors on cars, it's fairly easy. I mean, given the context, car makers have been putting sensors on cars for a long time. They know how to do that. It's hardware, it's mechanical. It's not the big deal. For me, the big deal and something I never hear from uh, car makers is what about the software part of it? And even more important, what about the coordination of all that software? In other words, what is or what are they doing to build a backbone to coordinate all of these cars and to figure out what's going to happen? In other words, is it going to be like the internet where it's extremely redundant, where if a car fails, other cars can see it and can take over the coordination? Will the coordination happen within the car? Is it going to be peer-to-peer or is there going to be a sort of centralized or centralized servers taking care of the, um, the whole coordination of these cars? And so this is something that I'd love to hear because if you really think about it, car makers have only been writing software for about a decade, maybe two decades if they were early on. And it's not something that they're very good at yet. Obviously, they're good at making cars and that's the physical hardware part of it. So, so we're, we're, we're really wondering who are they hiring? Who's, who's writing what? Is it going to be open source, not open source? Who's teaming up with who? And those are the fundamental questions. I just don't read in the news and it really is, it's worrying us at this point. I think I'll push back a little bit on that with respect to the automaker's experience writing code. The average automobile now, I think, has more than 10 million lines of code in its operating system because there are so many sensors, as you mentioned. And I think luxury cars can easily surpass 100 million lines of code. The numbers I got were from a few years ago. And I'm sure that with ever more features coming in, they have ever more complex code. The main difference is that if you have a smartphone or a desktop, it's okay for it to crash occasionally and get rebooted. I think Tesla owners have occasionally reported that rebooting their vehicle will uh, fix some software errors, whereas crash in the software sense is the red line of failure for the regular automaker because Mercedes, Audi, Lexus, they don't want their customer to have to reboot because something has screwed up on their system. I believe that because of this focus on making sure the overall system stays up at all times, you get a conservatism, a very cautious approach. I think this is one of the reasons why automakers were slow with over-the-air updates because as anyone who has updated the software on their smartphone knows, sometimes you have to download a patch <laughs> a day after you download the initial upgrade. 
And so I do think that automakers have had a lot of experience writing code. It's just that their focus has been very different from the makers of consumer software because the consequences are much reduced. If you have a smartphone that bricks, well, you pay it $1,000 or whatever it is for the fancy phone that you sold them. If the software in a car fails, then it's not just the price of the car. You might have to pay the person's medical costs. There might be lawyers after you, as you mentioned, for a class action lawsuit saying you put the lives of all these people on the road in danger. And so it's a very different world that the car makers inhabit. That said, it is a very interesting challenge about the sensors because certainly if you test your cars in California or in Austin, Texas, or a couple of the other early adopter areas where you can do autonomous driving, I don't think it rains that much. I'm pretty sure it doesn't snow very often. And so a lot of these challenges we're going to see in other areas, such as even Vancouver or more particularly the rest of Canada, won't exist. In parts of Canada, you can't see lane markings for months at a time because they're buried under snow. That's right. Yes. So in that case, you need to have super high resolution maps that the, uh, that the car can access. Uh, similarly, you might have areas where you don't have decent internet coverage. So the car has to be able to pre-download or has to come with a whole bunch of data so that it can make it from the edge of one 3G, 4G zone to the next. So to your point, in a sense, the software is the easy part. It's the whole deploying it in the real world with real people who will, who will always abuse it. We will always do things with our devices that the manufacturers never thought we would. And handling all these cases will be probably a bigger challenge than merely the, um, the software to make sure the car stays in the lane and gets you where you want to go safely and avoids pedestrians and so forth. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, it really starts, now we're going into the internet kind of way of, of building things. You know, how do we load balance everything? What is the synchronization and coordination going to look like? And I think those are the news that we don't really hear that often about. And I'd like to hear a heck of a lot more than just, you know, how many sensors are on a car right now. Right. I think a bunch of automakers have also focused on having sensors that sense whether the driver is paying attention. So instead of just having yes. to tap the wheel, there are sensors in the cars with more self-driving features. I think you mentioned the Nissan ProPilot. I'm not sure if this has some of these. No, it doesn't. No. The intermediate steps on the way to level five autonomy will, you'll have to have the driver Yes. Reasonably aware because it might take a few seconds if you've dozed off to actually recover in time to avoid an accident. And if you might need a few seconds, then you can't really afford to doze off. No. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it is, uh, it is one of these real world challenges that is all the more delightfully difficult. I say delightfully in an ironic way uh, that <laughs> one can achieve in the lab or just, just at the computer screen. I say this is a person who spends most of his day at the computer screen. That's right. Poor aching eyes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But moving on, I think, I think another thing that I wanted to end on a, on a, on a much uh, cheerful note is we all complain. We all complain about governments. We complain about corporations. Or certainly I do. I know I do a lot. And I was really happy to see a uh, great uh, campaign that went uh, to the Senate and telling them, don't remove our EV incentives. They actually do work. They help people buy cars, especially, well, Plug in America says low income, and I still have to see the numbers on that one. But I agree to a certain extent, at least middle class America access uh, electric cars and everything. This is actually a great demonstration of what democracy is. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I voted. I'll vote again in four years. That's not democracy at all. That's ridiculous. And we certainly have seen that. That doesn't really 
end up really well. Democracy is actually writing to your Congress members, writing to your, your Senate members, writing to everyone and saying, no, buzz off. So we're not out of the woods yet. The Senate basically backed off, but it doesn't mean that uh, the bill will continue its way up to Congress. And pretty much, I, we know it will. So we need to continue putting the pressure. But I thought it was a great example of what happens when people band together and say no. So my next story is also going to be about when people band together and create their own energy grid or, or smart grids. And that's also, I have a really good story that highlights how people can come together and really make a difference and be part of democracy instead of just complaining. There's an interesting dynamic at play with this electric car tax credit. On the one hand, the people who want to kill it are generally the people who hate Tesla. <laughs> That's so true. It's true. And the weird thing is that Tesla would face steeper competition if it's left in place because it's going to be by far the earliest car maker to hit 200,000 plug-in electric vehicles, after which point there's like a six-month phase-out. It's kind of convoluted. If the electric car tax credit were killed immediately, then everyone's sort of on an even playing field in terms of the rebates you get for various vehicles. If it stays on, Tesla actually faces an uphill battle because they'll have to sell the Model 3 at regular price, while GM will still be able to sell the Bolt EV with a federal tax credit. Nissan will still be able to sell its Leaf, its longer range Leaf, with a federal tax credit. All the other manufacturers will still be able to access these tax credits. I fully agree with you that participation is key to democracy, even in the United States where money seems to rule. The lone hopeful thing I got from the election last year was that Donald Trump, despite the monster being the monster that he is, it's just my little editorial comment, Donald Trump won the presidency without having the big money. And if you can do that from a conservative kind of crazy side, you can definitely do that from the progressive side as Bernie Sanders almost pulled out. Definitely don't want to count this chicken before it hatches. But yes. if electric car tax credit can stay in place, then hopefully that will um, demonstrate that conscientious people can overturn the desires of people who are more directly self-interested and short-term thinking focused. There was some horrendous stuff which uh, appears to have happened with the uh, solar and wind investment or production tax credits. We haven't reported on it yet because I'm still not entirely sure how to uh, interpret them. I don't want to report something incorrect. I'd rather be late to report a story. And with this podcast, you know that we're coming late with stories. As that shakes out, we get firm confirmation on that. We'll be able to report that. But yes, it is hopeful that we may be able to keep the electric car tax credit in place as that will definitely help move consumers towards more zero emission vehicles. Now, uh, moving on to my story, I had the good fortune this year of uh, contributing to the Fuel Cell Industry Review 2017. You can download it at com. On Clean Technica and elsewhere, you do get a, a fair amount of criticism of fuel cells because they haven't lived up to their overhyped promise from 20 years ago. I can guarantee you that outside of maybe the executive offices where people had insanely lucrative stock options, no one 20 years ago thought fuel cells were going to be the big thing, at least not the guys like myself who were on the floor. We thought it was great that maybe we could pay off some student loans, but Fuel cells in 2000 were a bit like the internet in 2000 or e-commerce in 2000. It wasn't ready for prime time. Now, as Amazon has shown, e-commerce is 
destroying brick and mortar retail. And fuel cells aren't quite there yet, but they have reached a state where they are undergoing a steady exponential growth, much like wind and solar did. I'll include these charts in the show notes, but if you look at the overall megawatts of commercial deployments, megawatts deployed, uh, fuel cells in 2017 are where solar was in 2002 and where wind was in 1994. And not only is the amount of megawatts shipped about the same, but the growth rate for the past few years is also matching. For various reasons, we can expect that growth rate to continue for a number of years yet. For people who are a little bit uh, cynical of fuel cells, well, they have crossed that corner. They are hitting their hockey stick. And dismissing them because they're small and rounding error is at the risk of being short-sighted in five to 10 years, because that's just like being short-sighted about solar in 2002, just like being short-sighted about wind in 1994. It seems that most people, at least the, the calm and rational conversation, however few they might be around that topic, the ones that I've been having lately seems to say that you know, when it comes to personal cars, eh, that's, that's a bit of a stretch, but there are fantastic applications of it. I mean, you know, look at NASA and the, and the space, well, not the space shuttle anymore, but the space lab, but also off-wind wind farms on the ocean and also trucks, my goodness, you know, long-haul trucks. So there are applications. I think that a lot of people are starting to get that. I mean, is that something that you're seeing too? Yes. So the market for passenger vehicles is extremely challenging in part because batteries are such a fantastic solution. I think there is a risk of assuming that all people who buy gasoline fossil fuel vehicles today will shift to batteries. I think this is just like we talked about with autonomous vehicles, the technology is there more or less. It's just consumer behavior and human beings can be very resistant to change. Some people will want or express preferences for um, going to a station somewhere and filling up in a few minutes. Maybe they live in condos. Maybe their garage is full of camping gear. I know people like that. So passenger cars, bullish as Toyota is, one would think that most of the volume for fuel cells will eventually come into heavier duty applications such as trucks or buses. We talked about the costs for some cities of electrifying all their buses due to utility upgrades a couple episodes ago. The one market where fuel cells are just decimating batteries right now, just destroying them, is on the material handling or the warehouse forklift side where plug power in which Walmart and Amazon own stakes is rapidly well, gradually, it's not really a rapid thing, nothing in fuel cells is rapid. They are gradually displacing battery forklifts in warehouses with fuel cell forklifts for productivity reasons. There was a Ford comment that earned much derision the other day about how their autonomous vehicles would be plug-in hybrids because electric vehicles would have to recharge too long to make the autonomous vehicles yeah, stay tuned to that one. We're, we're going to write something about it because I, I sort of dug into that and it does make some sense, but it opens up a lot of questions. So stay tuned. You'll see it right. soon on Clean Technica. Sure. So in that case, until 350 kilowatt chargers become commonplace and vehicles get set up for them, you might well have a plug-in hybrid battery fuel cell vehicle as your vehicle of choice because then you can fuel very quickly. And you know, I, th I think you, you do make a great point because the, although I think batteries are great for personal cars, when it comes to storage, energy storage, batteries are really not the best thing, especially lithium batteries are still expensive. And, you know, of course, uh, depending on the temperature outside, they, the, the, their efficiency will range widely. And I think this is where a few cells actually would make the most sense or even, you know, vanadium flow cell batteries and things like that. That is really optimized for that. And I think that's where the industry is kind of taking a very strange turn, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yes. So, well, to reemphasize, energy storage with batteries is fantastic. And until we run out of places where we can use them, we might as well deploy them as fast as possible. 
That said, it is harder to build out the gigawatts or gigawatt hours worth of storage you might want or need. And it's much easier as we scrap out the petroleum refineries just to refill those refineries, those tanks with hydrogen or uh, some chemical which contains excess hydrogen that we can liberate called liquid organic hydrogen carriers. So, so perhaps the, the best way to frame it is that fuel cells and hydrogen are they're not batting first, second, third, or cleanup. You know, they're not the main players on our energy transition. They're kind of a role player. They're maybe the shortstop who doesn't have a great batting average, but has excellent defensive fielding capabilities. Thinking about American football, they might not be on the offensive or defensive line, but they're a special teams player who's called in to um, fill the gaps where the existing big technologies, wind, solar, batteries, efficiency, aren't able to specialize. That's a great and, analogy, by the way. I, yeah, I really thank like you. that. I, yes. I spent a lot of time thinking of, of a way to uh, <laughs> characterize this. Um, we have seen in northern United Kingdom and also in northern Germany as well an interest in connecting wind resources to electrolyzers to generate hydrogen to pipe those back into the system because the distribution of population or the availability of different types of energy makes that more practical, more feasible than strictly using the electrons as electricity as you normally would expect. But again, just to re-emphasize, I'm, I'm not saying that fuel cells are better than batteries. They're just different from batteries. They have a part to play, and I'm delighted that they are uh, finally beginning their little uptrend. And perhaps in five years, then um, perhaps some of the discussions will go towards where batteries and fuel cells can complement each other as opposed to this internecine uh, squabbling that we often have between these two camps. True, and it needs to... Um they all need to get along and to work together. That's for sure. That's right. I guess one last thing to note, a lot of Clean Technica readers and podcast listeners are no doubt interested in learning curves, like how much do your costs tend to drop every time you double cumulative production. And pulling from a September report that we earlier referenced from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they had estimated a 19% learning rate for batteries and wind and somewhere between 24 and 28% learning curve for solar. Now, one of the fuel cell companies, Plug Power, stated in a recent presentation that their learning curve is about 25%. And so again, fuel cells are still a bit player. They're rounding error. They'll be lucky to grow and to be more than a couple percent of the bigger solution in the next decade. But this is, again, consistent with the solar wind battery experience where you do have costs coming down. And these costs, incidentally, have come down without materials breakthroughs. And before production has gone to China, it will go there one day. So we are likely to see continued cost reductions, which means continued growth in the sector and continued filling of those gaps where wind, solar, batteries might not be super optimal. But then altogether, all of this puts pressure on fossil fuels. The one last thing I want to cram in to this long, monologous <laughs> uh, speech here is that there's a very valid criticism that a lot of hydrogen for fuel cells comes from natural gas, which is fossil fuel, completely valid. The one really awesome thing, I think, for the fuel cell sector has been that because wind and solar have been so good at driving prices down, both for the installation of those renewables resources and because they've come online, wholesale prices for electricity have come so far down, we can foresee a future where in some cases it will be practical to generate hydrogen competitively from electrolysis 
thanks to clean energy rather than using natural gas. That is so funny because, it, I mean, it really is ironic, isn't it? When we were saying, no, renewable energy is better than hydrogen. Hydrogen is only, uh, you can only do it through petroleum derivatives. But hey, how about we use renewable energy to create hydrogen, which kind of reminds me of the same thing that we have here. Those oil pumps that pump out the crude, they use an electric motor. So I, right. I think that's, that's really fantastic. It sort of turns it around completely. Right. And so in this case, certainly a lot of the hydrogen produced in the next number of years will be from natural gas. But every bit of progress that wind and solar make, make it more likely and more economical to generate hydrogen from electrolysis. Shell is putting together, I think it's in northern Germany, an electrolyzer to make hydrogen in industrial quantities for one of its uh, large refinery complexes. And if they do it once, as long as the technical details work out, as long as the technology proves okay, you can be sure they'll deploy this more widely because that will reduce their own corporate carbon footprint. It'll insulate them from carbon taxes, which only have one direction to go up and will also allow them to try to create new value streams for themselves because nowadays every fossil fuel management team knows they're a mature sector, they're going to be on the decline, and they are highly motivated, or at least the ones who aren't retiring soon, are highly motivated to uh, have a company around that they can generate pensions and stock options from in the future. It's great to see the industries, all these industries moving together coherently because ultimately all we want is to have cleaner cars, safer cars, and clean up our climate change mess that we have right now. So all of these industries need to work together. And I think the conversation is definitely moving in the right direction. I guess that's another reason for my being so delighted at seeing all these advances in other technologies, even batteries, certainly, even though they're the closest competition in fuel cells in some little sectors. The farther along we can get, the further down the field, the further down the pitch we can get, the better things are for the bunch of us. And hopefully the, the less likely we are in future episodes, in future years, to have to preface these episodes about these terrible disasters that are occurring, which are accentuated or exacerbated by climate change, it'd be great to even be podcasting when the CO2 level in the atmosphere kind of stabilizes. I hope I live that long. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's just, yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> okay, that's it for now. Uh, thank you for listening. We hope you had a safe commute and join us for a year-end episode to get uh, your electric fix. We've been picking up the uh, pace on LinkedIn, so please come and join our conversations. There are a lot of them. They're 5 to 10 every day, and it's really happening, and it's very high-end, and it's wonderful. LinkedIn is a great social media network. Anyway, everybody have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next week.